0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States.
1: This was uh, Steve Bannon on steroids with a smile. We've been fooled by the pivot many times. Many people have been. The person is not dealing with the world in which we live. What the president says and what the president does are almost at opposite ends. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says anonymous sources shouldn't be allowed unless they're him. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg, and I'm here in the studio today with Virginia Heffernan, the cultural critic. Can I call you a cultural critic, sure, Virginia? Sure.
2: Culture. Th- and Donald Trump is culture.
1: Exactly. And sadly, politics. <laughs> and and Will Aremus, he's Slate's technology writer, but he's been detailed to the media beat uh, for the Trump emergency. Will, thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh,
1: so, Virginia, I wonder if you could get us started just by we're, – we're here the morning after – trump 's speech to a joint session of Congress last night. We all watched it, and I wonder if you just tell us what happened or what you think happened.
2: Well, Donald Trump walked in like Floyd Mayweather and <laughs> was um, hailed on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I should say that there are now two sides of the aisle again, I guess after Gabby Giffords was shot, people started sitting together in a spirit of unity and uh, but now, as we know there' Back to their usual seats. I guess Tim Kaine sat with the Republicans, which surprised people a little bit. Um, There was a feeling of unease, I think, in the audience. Some of the Congresswomen were dressed in white, I think, in protest. They also notably didn't applaud. He took the stage and gave what someone on Twitter called a remarkably hinged address. He was not bad Trump. He was telegraphing often that he was, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, which means in content condemning hate crimes, starting with a moment about African-American History Month. And, um, just being very cautious to get the facts factually or technically right.
1: Many, many of them, not all, but I mean, but just in, it was a pretty low bar because he walked in and he read a speech from a teleprompter and content aside, he behaved like a more or less decent, civilized human being. Yeah. And people are amazed by that.
2: I want, I mean, I want Will to say more about the reception, but, He did behave like a decent civilized human being. And we can say that the bar is low. We can say that if he, you know, doesn't lose his stuffing every time he, you know, takes the podium, that, that there's something sort of barely admirable about that. But there was something, you know, substantially admirable about it. I mean, I don't want to go so far as to normalize him or say that he's pivoted or say that, you know, every time he doesn't fulminate and foam at the mouth, that he's a hero. On the other hand, You know, he did say many of the right things without departing from his anti-globalist stance. And, you know, he didn't seem like a racist and a fascist. And he was open to the room. And I think we need to notice that, however frustrating it is, however manipulative it seems, we need to say that as much as some of us rolled our eyes at it he was behaving himself. He has this setting. He still has this setting in him and that's was a revelation at least to me.
1: But did you have the reaction I did that shit he's behaving like a decent oh, civilized yeah. human being? That's a low trick. Yes. You know, it's been 40 days and we really haven't seen that.
2: Yeah, yes, of course. I mean, I thought, you know, there's something a little, you know, there's always something I think more ominous and sinister about well-behaved Trump. You know, we don't know what it portends. You know, it's like our drunk dad has come home with flowers for our mom and toys for the kids and you're just like, oh, there's there's another bender uh, right around the corner.
1: Here's what you wrote about the speech, Will. You said on Tuesday night, Donald Trump managed to speak for an entire hour without sounding like an unhinged demagogue. For that, he was hailed by TV pundits across the spectrum who acted as though he'd single-handedly defeated ISIS and restored the fortunes of the American (laughs) middle class instead of simply reading from a script that said he would do those things.
0: Yeah, the the panel on CNN just absolutely fell over itself to to praise Trump's speech presidential was the word that was on every TV pundit's lips. I mean, when you think about it, it's it's sort of faint praise, right? I mean, the guy has been president for, <laughs> uh, and and for one night he sounded like one. Um, but I, I think what's interesting to me about it is that this allowed the mainstream media, uh, you know, in a network like CNN, to go back to its accustomed mode, which is mm. uh, this, this, you know, the, the focus on optics and the being wowed by some good political theater and and uh, being so keenly attuned to which way the political winds are blowing. You know, last night they were blowing in Trump's favor and CNN was all on board. <laughs> Van-, Van Jones, you know, who's the liberal activist on the yeah. panel, was the first one who came out and said he said something like, tonight, Donald Trump became president. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, every, everybody else agreed. David Axelrod agreed. Jennifer Granholm agreed. There's this thing about cable news punditry where whatever has just happened You get swept up in it and you go overboard with these declarations. I think the the notion that Trump has somehow changed or that he will be any different today than he was before the speech yesterday, you know, at this point, I, I think it's crazy to expect that. It's very interesting about the reaction
1: on CNN. They are dying to be able to normalize them. <laughs> and he hasn't he hasn't let the media normalize him because he's been he's been treating the media media like the opposition, calling them horrible names, behaving in this outlandish authoritarian way. And he hasn't given them an opportunity to go back to, as you say, their normal mode of saying there are two sides and we're not we're not taking either of them.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. It's like it's like they've been cornered into doing their jobs <laughs> by by Trump's insanity. They've been they've been forced to do things like focus on facts and, you know, dig into the actions behind the words because the words are so blatantly false so much of the time Yeah, um, that they have no choice but to do real reporting. You know, you have people like Jake Tapper coming on the air now routinely after something Donald Trump Trump has said and saying that's a lie or that's not true. And uh, what last night just just reminded us was that that's not CNN's preferred mode. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that they feel deeply uncomfortable with this, and they're doing it because, They have to. But they're they're really more comfortable getting up there and being able to praise the president as presidential or say that he gave a great speech um, to sort of give both sides or or one side at a time, but not be the opposition party.
2: I I mean, I I noticed that um, Charles Blow. A lot of the print journalists said what we've sort of been saying, which is we're really wary about this. This, you know, this doesn't mean anything. We're still holding his feet to the fire. We shouldn't mistake him as being brought to heel. And Van Jones, who's who's you know been if not quite in Charles Blow mode, who's you know who's been pretty forceful in his denunciation. This of, is new, the Charles, New York
1: Times columnist. Charles tra- yes,
2: Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist, who's who's very present on Twitter, especially during a live event like this. You know, just said, "I'm walking off. I'm I, I can't do this." And um, and he I, walked off Twitter. He walked off Twitter. That's right. And Van Jones, you know, maybe doesn't have that luxury at CNN. You know, he's expected to parse the performance and. You know, we've just been parsing the performance of the Oscars and here's where we return to theater. He gets, you know, two two thumbs up or whatever after this rhetorical display. But I, th- I really think the question is, was CNN brought to heel or was Trump brought to heel? Has Trump pivoted or has CNN, who, you know, still so recently wasn't even allowed in the room? And then they really are like, our abusive dad, you know, finally brought us some Legos.
1: Right. On Friday, they were kicked out of an on the record briefing by Sean Spicer along with the New York Times and, and BuzzFeed because yeah. of their negative coverage. Unbelievable. And, and now they've, they've given, as you documented, Will, this over the top positive coverage. Are they now personae gratae again? I mean, are they, I I sort of expect that's what will happen, right? Trump isn't going to call them enemies of the people today. He's going to give them positive feedback for their positive reinforcement.
0: Yeah, I, I think it will be interesting to see. When the next time is that Trump comes out with that epithet fake news that he's so fond of applying Mm. to to CNN and The New York Times uh, and every other news organization that reports critically on his administration, my bet would be as soon as he goes off script again, which will be today. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I really I think the idea that this is a pivot of any kind just overlooks the fundamental difference between the act of reading a speech to Congress from a teleprompter and all the other acts that are involved in the daily affairs of President Trump, the morning tweeting, you know, watching Fox and Friends and tweeting whatever he just saw them say without checking the facts, you know, falling back on his bashing of the media whenever he doesn't have anything else to say at the moment. I just cannot imagine that that changes in any respect, just because this speech appeared to have been written with substantial input and written well, I would say, by, you know, the whole range of uh, advisors in the White House, including, you know, sort of the, the more moderate prebus end of that group. and And to say these normalizing
1: things about him pivoting and being presidential, it does involve not only ignoring the context of what he's been saying, but also just focusing on the tone rather than the content of the speech. I mean, you know, yeah. in the speech, he announced this voice, which I believe stands for victims of immigration crime engagement. It's very hard. It's like a noun, string of nouns. You can't make sense out of it. But what it is, it's an organization, governmental organization that is just supposed to tabulate statistics and information on crimes committed by immigrants. And he hasn't even said, as far as I'm aware, illegal immigrants, mm-hmm. undocumented immigrants. I mean, is, are they really going to keep track of crimes committed by immigrants to the country as opposed <laughs> to native born Americans?
2: I don't, I don't even know what, what voice would look like in its applications. I don't, any guesses?
1: But I just think it's, you know, I, who, who the heck knows what it, I mean, it's, it's a press release, I guess, but it's, it's actually one of the most, and I don't use this word lightly, fascist sounding things he's done. The idea yeah. that you're going to, you're going to segment a group of American society. And he's not even declaring that it's necessarily people who are here illegally, but put yeah. that aside. But we're going to keep track of, of crimes by them. I mean, and first of all, one thing we know is that undocumented immigrants commit crimes at a fraction of the rate of non-immigrants. So we're starting with a non-problem, the opposite of a problem. And then we are collecting this information to stigmatize and and ultimately put these people in jeopardy.
2: You know, it's funny because it actually, with the engagement thing, it sounds like it's data collection and it also data collection to fuel set pieces like we saw last night when he managed to scare up a victim of, or the the widower, right, of a victim of um, immigrant, Co- community engagement, or what is it again? <laughs> um, and uh, and you know, he's always been looking for people killed by undocumented immigrants or do- or immigrants. And now he has a data collection unit that will give him, you know, more than a handful of examples.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's be frank. The word engagement is has to be just there so that they could have an E-word, e word. Oh, right? yeah, I mean, exactly. It's a total backronym. But the the part of the uh, name that that stuck out to me was immigration crime, mm. right? It's, I mean, that's the key phrase. It's victims of immigration crime mm. engagement. Right. And immigration crime, maybe I've just been conditioned uh, to, to think everything that Donald Trump says sounds fascist. But I agree with you, Jake. Th- I mean, that sounds like it th- sounds to me like thought crime. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it sounds dystopian. That right. could
2: be just someone who, you know, throws a punch, punch or growls at, a, you know, part of the border police or someone who, you know, to the TSA tells them to fuck off. Right. I mean, it, yeah, you're right. Immigration crime. It's not immigrants. What possessive plural? It's uh, immigration crime, right? That could be such a moving target. And let's talk a little bit about, you know, the other other word word that's interesting in the voice acronym is is victims. He almost made those congresswomen in in white feel sidelined or or even remiss if they didn't applaud Karen Owens, the the widow of of Ryan Owens.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the, you've hit on the word victims. I mean, all of his guests, the you know Lenny Skutnik people in the gallery were. In one way or another, victims either of, of immigration crime, or, you know, this, this woman who had survived a horrible disease, whatever the rare disease, rare disease,, yeah. or, or Corinne Owens. I mean, that's still the dark part of Donald Trump. You know, there was no entrepreneur. You know, there was no— you know, Reagan would have had someone who'd come up from nothing and, and accomplished some incredible thing. Yeah. You know, the 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 A student, the— Well, um, didn't
2: the girl who failed third grade a couple of times— um, and I don't even know if you failed third grade. Maybe you do. But um, didn't she also make it to college? And, and didn't the victim of the rare disease also accomplish something or other?
1: Yes, that's true. Sure, that's fair. There's a you know there's an overcoming and narrative as, as part of it. They're not just presented as purely as victims. But you know, I, I did feel there were th- th- these people who were his guests, were supposed to, generally speaking, make people angry and upset in some way.
2: Yeah. By the way, will you remind me of the Skutnik precedent for this? I, I, I saw that as shorthand on Twitter, but didn't manage to look it up or remember what it was. Well,
1: that was Reagan's first speech. And there was this uh, plane crash. The eastern shuttle crashed into the Potomac trying to land at National Airport. It was a horrible Disaster. A lot of people died, but the people were actually in the river. And this guy, Mm. Lenny Skutnik, who was a a bureaucrat, I forget what agency he worked for, dived into the icy Potomac and Uh. pulled this woman out. I mean, he really was a hero. And Reagan had him up in the gallery. And at some point in the speech, he told the story and turned to him. Mm. And ever since then... That's been known as the as the Leonard Lenny Skutnik moment, the people you have in the gallery to illustrate your points. I don't think it had ever been done in a State of the Union or, or addressed to a joint session of Congress before that.
0: Ah, got it. Yes, and, and so after, after, of course, I blasted the TV pundits for their uh, praise of Trump's speech, I, I mean, I have to admit, that was that Owens moment. It was really a brilliant piece of political theater. And it was so perfectly arranged to ensure that there would be Thunderous applause for for the widow. I mean, you you know, you couldn't help but be moved by this woman who's who's there in tears trying to hold it together as the president of the United States is calling her dead husband a hero. I mean, that's, you know, that's just, you know, you're not human if you don't feel something there. And Trump managed to associate himself with that. On the same day, let's not forget that he refused to take responsibility for that raid in Yemen. And he passed the buck. He passed the buck to Obama. He passed the buck to his own generals. I mean, anybody but him would, you know, could take responsibility for that man's death. And then he turns around and gets the entire nation you know, misty eyed at the tragedy of his death. Uh, I mean, you know, of course, we're misty eyed. You know, it was, it was again, it was a beautiful moment in some ways, but but also just incredibly manipulative, um, very shrewd on his part. And really, for for people who oppose Trump, it was a trap, because if you don't stand up and applaud there, you're a monster. Mm. And in fact, I was reading this morning, I was, I was doing my daily rounds of conservative media, and there's a headline in the Daily Caller, liberals attack seals widow and President Trump over tribute. And they they have a series of tweets uh, that were all but one said, you know, things like, God bless uh, Karen Owens, you know – My heart goes out to Karen Owens, you know, what a beautiful moment, but then criticized President Trump for his handling of it. But they did find one guy, one guy on all of Twitter who said an unkind word uh, about Ryan Owens widow. Mm. And so there's, you know, there's your headline for the day.
1: But how should they handle that situation? I mean, uh, the Democrats, you know, Trump said something that that based on what I've read is just demonstrably untrue. He claimed that that raid was a success. And he said, I think he said that lives would be saved in fe- preventing future terrorist attacks because of the actionable intelligence that was recovered on that raid. Mm. The reporting so far that I've read says no valuable intelligence was recovered on that raid and that doesn't make Ryan Owens any less brave or or a hero, but you know, it's a, it's a it's a false narrative that he's building. And you when you stand and clap for Karen Owens, it's the same line in the speech. You're standing and clapping for Trump's dishonest narrative about what actually happened. What should you do if you're if you're one of those Democrats sitting there?
2: I don't I mean, I don't know. I think I I mean, I guess I want to return a little bit to the question of women in the room. I think he did corner, and I don't know if he'd been given the heads up on on the number of Congresswomen who would dress in white, um, in deference, obviously, to the suffragists, but also possibly to Hillary Clinton, who had worn white in, at one of the debates, notably. But I think he really trapped them. You know, it was mostly women and girls, I think, who, you know, there was one man, but mostly women and girls who were in that, as you say, Scott neck role. And he really, yeah, I mean, I'll just say it again, you really could not refrain from applauding them without, you know, without seeming sort of monstrous.
1: Right. But you're being made into a prop. I mean, that's that's what happens in the speech. On the other hand, if he'd given a speech like his inaugural address, you know, a hate filled, barnstorming, ranting speech, they could have sat there and scowled and given the thumbs down and not stood.
2: And he, and even booed. We had John Cassidy on the show and he, you know, he's British and he wondered, you know, why there's no kind of parliamentary House of Commons outcry and candor ever in these rooms. And I mean, this was with all the standing ovations and standing and sitting and and applause on both sides of the aisle. You know, it just was back to that. He just has our head and a vice, you know, he just um, we just do this more than deference, you know, the standing and cheering. I mean, why couldn't those women in the room be heard, you know, booing or or even hissing or those House of Commons? You know, things that say we're not going to normalize. This is an incredibly abnormal um speech that, you know, as Jacob says, elides many of the facts and even the things that he said, you know, the day before.
0: Yeah, nobody stood up last night and, and shouted, you lie.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was looking as they did in the Obama with one of the Obama addresses.
0: But he didn't give them a o- good
1: opportunity to and they were wise not to. Right. And, and again, if he'd given a different kind of speech, there might have been that kind of moment. But it would have been a mistake to do that last night, I think.
2: You, you think so? Yeah. Walter Shapiro also said that on Twitter that, you know, he thought the um, behaving with dignity and silence was a good idea. But, you know, I think that's the theme of this panel of our, our conversation is, you know, how ought we to behave when uh, we feel somewhat trapped by this by this rhetoric? Um,
1: it's exhausting. Well, how consciously do you think he is manipulating the media? I mean, earlier in the day, he had the network anchors in and told them off the record, speaking as a senior administration official, he was <laughs> (laughs) of course outed right away. But he said he might announce that people who were here illegally would be allowed to stay. They wouldn't be deported. Like a huge concession, basically amnesty. And he said he might have that in the speech. He didn't have that in the speech. So speaking off the record knowing that there's no way as president you can tell a whole group of journalists something off the record when they don't immediately tell their colleagues, by the way, that was the president who then reported, and then saying he was going to do this thing and then not doing it. I mean, is he playing a game here with the
0: media? That's the eternal question about Trump, isn't it, right? I was joking the other day about this this idea that he's playing you know four dimensional chess or 12 dimensional chess I mean, <laughs> you know is he is he uh, you know is he a mastermind who has figured out how to push all the right buttons of liberals to make them go insane or is he just <laughs> you know is he just a an unfiltered uh, you know boor who who happens to make them go insane um, and and I think that's you know I, I do think there is an, a serious attempt and a Conscious attempt by the Trump administration. I think some of it has to be coming from Bannon based on his history um, to manipulate the media. I mean, I I think we've we've seen it again and again. Bannon knows the art of trolling. He understands that if you say certain things that are taboo, they will make you know, they will make the mainstream media go apeshit. Without alienating sort of the average, you know, mm. the average person in the country, um, who who doesn't get that particular dog whistle, um, that's that's really directed at at the liberal media. Mm. Um, so I, I do think there's some, I do think there's some of that at work, but I also just think, I mean, it, it, you can't rule out the fact that this has been a disorganized administration. Its communication team. You know one communications person doesn't know what the other one is doing at any given moment. they rarely stay on message. It's unclear what the message is, and even if there is a message, it's Trump who goes off message so i don't I don't think I don't want to give them too much credit and assume that that everything they do um, is coordinated exactly mm-hmm. yeah.
2: I mean you know we'd been saying that his outbursts over the past couple of weeks um, have been a distraction from the Russia question. He didn't touch on Russia, but uh, did anyone hear in his his account of how now historically we're friends with our former enemies. Did anyone did either of you hear in that? A yeah, reference? Uh, well, whisper of,
1: of Ru- um, Russia. He was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. The, in that triumphant way that he that he talks about how, you know, forming a good relationship with Russia is a good thing. One other moment that struck me and that I want your opinions on is um, the reference with education. He sort of seemed to coin a little bit of an epigram that education is the, what did he say, the civil rights issue of our time, something like that. I mean, that I think was meant to land as his, you know, great Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall to some extent. Um, And obviously a a nice close up on Betsy DeVos and the audience. Did that ring as, as just, you know, deeply hypocritical or did you think he really landed that point? Well, I, what shocked me
0: is that he even used the word education. <laughs> I mean, it, used to, it used to be a cliche that presidential candidates would would run on education, right? It was like the issue that you couldn't lose on. It was the issue that everybody agreed on. He hardly ever talked about education throughout his entire campaign, yeah,
2: that's right. Uh, so I
0: was just stunned to hear that word come out of his mouth,
2: yeah. I just I thought, you know, to press in, on some of the members of the cabinet. And, you know, notably absent were Stephen Miller and Stephen Bannon. Their rhetoric, I thought, you know, while we think they're always pulling the strings, this speech seemed to have a different hand in it. And, and Ivanka Trump and some of the, the, you know, the less offensive members of the cabinet and on the coterie were the ones that got the close-ups in the room. And I, I thought that was significant, too.
1: It seems like Trump has spent 40 days playing to his base and tonight he took cognizance of the of the majority of people in the country who don't agree with him
0: it made me wonder if if people who oppose trump's agenda should be grateful that he has uh, bannon and miller pulling the strings some of the time or that, you know, be grateful that he is not uh, modulating himself in this way on a regular basis. Because last night showed, I mean, he clearly has a gift for politics and for oratory and for connecting with people. He's He's a champion storyteller. And, you know, last night showed just how potent he could be If he were able to keep it together on a regular basis and, and if the sort of more moderate voices in his administration were the ones that came out of his mouth on a routine basis, I mean, he might be, he might be far more effective. He'd be. Maybe less scary in some ways because the unhinged version of Trump is a threat not only to policy but it is a threat to the idea of truth and and the and trust in American institutions and that sort of thing but uh, you know in some ways, maybe if you're rooting against trump's agenda, maybe you should be. Rooting for uh, Trump's craziness, because because the Trump we saw last night could, I think, get a lot more done than the Trump we've seen the rest of the time. I
1: yeah. think that's a great point. Will. I think mm-hmm. the 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 Trump who seems reasonable is the one we should be afraid of. And that guy we saw last night is undermined by the ranting, loony, tweeting Trump. And like you, I'm not worried he's going to stop doing that because that's his character and he can't stop himself. But if we only had the Trump of last night, I think we'd have a much bigger problem.
2: It's just hard to tell if once he's mellow and gets a lot of applause, if that sedates him, and then he wants to backpedal from his immigration executive order, or if he says, "Well, now they, now I have the press coming and going, so I can, uh, you know, go back to my Bannonism and uh, and get a pass." And you know, he does have us coming and going. We don't. None. Nothing he says has predictive power, and that is maddening to as Will says, that CNN way of parsing a speech like this. It's just, you know, he just has a whole different way of talking. As I say, this was a speech act, I think, meant to convey, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. For, oh, remember, we've got a long way to go, or there's still a lot of work to do to combat racism. The first thing he says, it's like, a sedative it's like Xanax for the crowd you know that you you know make the case that's made by the movie Hidden Figures or Selma or just all those American progressive narratives and then you kind of go to sleep on the rest of it give them a pass for the next week or two
0: yeah Frank Luntz tweeted last night that that one of the clearest uh, things he's seen in, in the polling is, or the focus groups, is that when Trump reaches across uh, race or gender lines in any way, the approval just just spikes. And you know, why doesn't he do the, do more of this?
2: Well, I think I think the caprice is. You know, as part of it, that it could happen at any time. I think really early, um, in this, in this series, in this, in Trump cast, um, Jacob and I had a conversation about Trump's behavior on The Apprentice, and he's nice very, very rarely, but just enough to keep you kind of coming back. And, you know, I think that the, I think the erraticness is really, really part of the pose. Um, and these are, You know, we're still here talking about how does Trump talk? What is the stagecraft around these things? And uh, I think that's proof that he has his long-running show. He's, you know, he's... uh, Got a Hamilton thing that we're all we're all uh, glued to. I mean, I don't think there was anyone on Twitter. It was more than the Oscars that people were watching it and making marginalia on it and clearly sitting through to the end waiting for the, you know, I didn't I skipped a lot of State of the Unions from from Obama, frankly, and, you know, read about them the next day. And this is just he's got prime time on all the networks.
1: All right. I've been speaking to Slate's media writer, Will Arimus, and the cultural critic, Virginia Heffernan. Thank you guys for joining me.
2: Thank you, Jacob. This Thanks. is fun.
1: That's it for today's show. Virginia?
2: Tremcast is produced by Jason DeLeon.
1: Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast.
2: You have this memorized, Jacob. You're too good. <laughs> Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer.
1: I'm Jacob Weisberg.
2: I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.